0: Welcome to Season 2 of the Just for a Change podcast, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. We love hearing and sharing stories about social innovation happening both locally and outside our borders in the Global South. In Season 2, we put the spotlight on the change makers behind some incredibly innovative approaches and solutions who are creating systemic change. And we're also curious to find out what keeps them going. Join us as we discover how these change makers are changing the way we're changing the world. Sanbonani molueni, good morning. I am your host, Luvuyo Maseko. Co-hosting the show with me today is a well-known voice here on the Just for a Change podcast, my partner in crime, Simni Yuetanga.
1: Hello, it's so great to be here today, Luvuyo, as we talk about the pathways to entrepreneurship in the Global South.
0: Yeah, really exciting topic we have today. Uh, so entrepreneurship, is seen by many to be the most obvious solution to fix problems such as youth unemployment and poverty. Now, of course, there are opportunities in this regard, and entrepreneurship does have a role to play. But the entrepreneur's journey is complicated, and it sure isn't an easy road to walk. Mm,
1: absolutely, Luvuyo, especially so in the global south.
0: Without the adequate support along the way, the chance of making as an entrepreneur slim It's a really tough pill to swallow, especially considering that one of the biggest motivators of African entrepreneurs is making a community difference.
1: Silicon Valley, Sweden or Switzerland are perhaps some of the first places that come to mind for many when we're thinking of entrepreneurship. However, Africa sure hasn't been idle on this front, especially African youth for that matter. I think of a couple of incredible innovations that have been pioneered by African youth like Go One, which is the first unicorn in South Africa, and Flutter Wave out of Nigeria, to name just two. In the African context, however, the complexity of entrepreneurship stems from a number of issues, including, for example, limited access to capital, especially early-stage funding, no coherent policy on entrepreneurship, no visible domestic entrepreneurship strategies, and a lack of incentives and overall support compared to entrepreneurs in the global north.
0: Now, even though there has been an influx of innovation hubs, startup incubators, entrepreneurship accelerators, and the like, the majority of these hubs are in Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, and Egypt. And many of them are concentrated only in large wealthy cities, which means they are not easily accessible to the poor, rural, and uneducated. With recording across the Global South and online, we are often challenged with differing recording levels. We hope that you understand and that it doesn't get in the way of your enjoyment of this episode. But before I get ahead of myself, and we'll hear from you again in the Positive Outlook segment, Simni.
1: Talk to you later.
0: I would love today's guest to join us in this conversation. First up, would like to welcome Dr. Pumlanin Gondwana, who is a senior lecturer at the UCT Graduate School of Business and an experienced entrepreneur in his own right. And we also have fellow entrepreneur, Ruben Kimani, joining us from Kenya. Ruben is the managing director and founder at Eden Bridge Capital Limited, a microfencing company. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. Really excited to get this conversation going and... Uh, Dr. Pumlani, I'll start with you. You recently completed your PhD dissertation. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you very much. And uh, if you could tell us a little bit about what are the key things that
2: surprised you during your research? Well, um, there's a couple of things. I think the, the first one, I was amazed at how skeptical people are about entrepreneurship. That was a big surprising because if you read every document on policy or you listen to private sector, they almost promote entrepreneurship, almost like as if it's an accepted gospel. But um, the people on the ground in some African contexts, they were quite skeptical, at least of entrepreneurship as it is at the moment.
0: Mm, mm, mm. And, and, and the next question I have is directed to the both of you, but I'll start off, off with Ruben. And, and Ruben, in your context, particularly in Kenya, What do you think are some of the biggest hurdles for entrepreneurs in the global South?
3: Uh, Thanks for having me. Um, I I can say entrepreneurship is really interesting. And uh, what happens is that we have a couple of hurdles, not only in the South, but also the East. And one of the biggest challenges is access to capital, especially for young individuals. And especially where you don't have savings or you don't have property that you can take to the bank and get capital. Uh, the second thing is just the courage to start. It's amazing to have very amazing ideas, a uh, very good uh, business plan, but just the aspect of starting requires a bit of courage, requires a bit of preparation. And also I can say another challenge around entrepreneurship is this thing where, especially for African community, is a, and I've seen it across quite a number of places, where you want to do it alone as opposed to getting a community around you that can help you in time when it comes to matters to of doing the entrepreneurship
0: Thanks for thanks for that answer, and and I'd like to jump a little bit more about the context that yet you currently find yourself in, and could you please paint a little bit of a picture and tell us a little bit more about the entrepreneurial scene and experience within Kenya?
3: Yeah, sure. Thanks a lot, and I'll start with my journey. I've been in the banking and microfinance space for the last eighteen years. So a couple of years back, I sat down and asked myself, "Uh, what's my journey for the next?" Uh, for the next bit of life where i was just almost hitting my 40th birthday and you know life starts at 40. and i realized that i have expertise and experience in banking and finance and i realized there's a whole gap around supporting micro and small enterprises in this country especially after frs9 introduction and most of the banks were preferring the safe customers who are the corporates um, so i sat down came up with a business plan and one of the biggest challenges again was the aspect of capital how do I raise this capital? So I, I approached a couple of guys. Uh, some of them were in for it. Then, when it came to starting, they pulled away. So, quickly, I had to work again. I'd already started engaging a couple of people who would be my employees. I had a, a place of business. Uh, so, quickly, I took my title for my house, took it to the bank, uh, remortgaged my house, and that's how I got capital to start my business. And I can say through the journey, uh, along the journey, I asked myself again, how do I make my business scalable and bigger than myself and also build credibility? So i set up a board. That's a whole committee around my business now. Uh, but I'd still, like I say, access to capital is one of the biggest challenges.
0: And my next question is to my illustrious colleague, Pumlani. And if you could tell us a little bit, how has the systems approach been beneficial to you, the work both within your own entrepreneurial journey and the way in which you, you think through the issues of entrepreneurism?
2: I think the, the picture that uh, Ruben in the Kenyan context uh, has painted is very uh, similar to a lot of what, what um, first-time entrepreneurs experience in Africa. But Ruben is also an exception in that he had both the experience and an asset. And one of the big findings in in my research was the fact that Because young people who are first-time entrepreneurs are assetless, it becomes a huge constraint. This is why I'm not surprised about Ruben's story, because it illustrates exactly what is consistent with research. It also illustrates something else, which also comes from the research, is that you are likely to be more successful when you are slightly older. In fact, globally... This age of 40 that Ruben mentioned is actually consistent. And we found another studies, even in in, in other parts of, of Africa, that are consistent with the fact that median entrepreneurs are over 40 who are successful. And part of the reason that's the case is because they can access capital because they have assets. They can convert their asset to capital. They can also convert something else, which is their network. Ruben mentioned 18 years of experience in a particular domain. So he's not only networked in that space, he, he is also a domain expert in banking. And these are some of the properties that, you know, among other properties, um, enable you to start, which doesn't mean you will succeed. I'm sure Ruben will tell you his own challenges on that. So I think, I think that picture, he's a, he's a classic archetype that is likely to succeed. But the question remains, what do you do when you're a first-time entrepreneur and you are assetless? And that's where the issue starts.
0: And, and just as an aside, someone who's not 40 yet, you guys are at least giving me something to look forward to. But I, I just want to pull on, on, on that thread of, of, of understanding that the majority, at least within the South African context, entrepreneurship has often been seen as a solution that can be given to where young people are, a 19-year-old. And through what you're saying is that, and what we've also found, the most successful entrepreneurs are people who've had jobs and have networks of assets. So how do we then look to build programs that make sense for where a lot of these younger entrepreneurs are? Or if is that possible?
2: we can no longer talk about entrepreneurship without confronting um, this issue of assets uh, because the existing financial architecture and Ruben knows this more than me because he was on the other hand of this does not tolerate young people or anybody that does that that is risky it is not risk liking and so what needs to be discussed is what are the innovative ways of reimagining assets? Could we, for example, think of assets at community level? Could we, for example, convert what young people's experiences are, as raw as maybe less corporatized as they are, as means of assets? How else could we deal risk and provide collateral for young people? So there was a... a a scheme in South Africa, which was called Kula Enterprise Bank, which existed to de-risk a young person in South Africa whom the system found to be worthy of being invested, but was assetless. It was a government scheme that then said, Bank X or financial institution Y, you can fund this person. If they fail, we will take the fall. Now, that was government-led, and at some point it It ended. The question is, what are other social institutional arrangements that we can put in place that are similar to that? I was surprised that Ruben specifically cited uh, finance as a constraint, which is also listed as number one across all all the research.
0: I do want to get to the next question, and it's a lot about the context you find yourself in, particularly you, Ruben. And uh, from what we know, that entrepreneurship hubs and accelerators are, are really popular in your context. Do you think it's playing an important role in your country? Do you think they're working?
3: I would say yes and no. And yes, depends on the field that you are playing. And no, depending on the space you are in. In the sense that, uh, for instance, I've been trying to attract capital for my business. So we've been growing aggressively uh, for the last uh, three years. So because we're a three-year-old company, uh, we've seen our our staff numbers grow from... uh, Two staff members when I'm starting off to currently about 71 staff members are asset-based growing tenfold within the same space. But still, when I go out looking for capital, I'm told I must present three-year audited accounts. Right now I have that, but initially I didn't have that. So I went again, and something that has been alluded to earlier, and I went to my network. And the bulk of my capital and investment, I found it within my network. And part of it was equity and what we call private placement, which is basically debt. Uh, So I would say for a young African individual, it's a bit challenging getting capital in this space. And what I'd just like to challenge is that within the African context, can we get entrepreneurs who can go and say, look here, we're looking for young companies that we can support their viable ideas and we can put in capital. But again, it requires a bit of patient capital. And with the aspect of understanding that you might lose this money. So understanding the risk aspect is really clear. And also for coming up again and setting
0: up like a, what I'd call a governance structure. And, and Pumlani, before I hand over to you, I see you nodding and continually nodding, particularly at the piece around risk. And I would like to know in general, maybe for someone is a little bit ignorant to the space, what do you find is the risk appetite for investing in, in young entrepreneurs across the African context? And then the, the second part is the same question I asked to Ruben earlier. What do you think has been the impact of some of these hubs?
2: Yeah, so I I think that uh the, the risk appetite is uh is very low. Um we know that we've been paying attention to data for the last ten years. We know that investors wait until your business is validated, which is that three year mark. And they also wait often until somebody else co finances you. So we you know, investors in Africa talk about co financing rather than financing which means that somebody else must lay the groundwork first and take the risk. And that is evidence that you are worthy of being, or or you are investable or bankable. And that's the big issue. And often when they do that, they do that to businesses that would succeed without them. Businesses that commercial banks would jump on because somebody else has done the groundwork. So the issue really here is about how do we, incentivize or lay in people with money to start early and become angel investors, which is what um, um, my colleague here is talking about, Ruben, because Ruben is also saying something else. He's saying that mentorship is also key for startups. It's not just about throwing cash. We need passionate investors who are champions, Will back this business and provide their experience and expertise, Ruben has been able to broker those skills and money because he 's networked, which is the point we 're discussing earlier so when you are young but not networked like him, even him with eighteen years work working experience from the banking sector he's still struggling to access finance so so that 's the the, the conversation we need to, ha- to be having in the African ecosystem. Now, going back to your second question, which was about what then is the role of hubs if we have these two gaps, which is the expertise and experience of all the entrepreneurs as well as access to finance. And what we are learning, which is why probably Ruben was saying yes or no to your answer, is that many of the accelerators or hubs they like to support tech companies. That's a good thing, but it's one sector, what we call in research mono That's the characteristics of many accelerators and hubs in Africa. They promote what I call mono entrepreneurship, which is basically this entrepreneurship type that's obsessed with one domain. If you are elsewhere, and you have a different revenue model that's outside tech or is not tech-enabled, then they won't back you up. The reason for that is very simple, is that a tech-enabled business has a shorter time frame to break even because you have the technology to scale quickly. But what happens when you're running a retail business, construction business, or what uh, Ruben is trying to do? I
0: have Two last questions that i that I'm trying to squeeze in here, and a little bit of what you guys are talking about then is then at least for the way I'm understanding it is then who should then step in and play this role who should who then should have a higher risk appetite and a part of me is leaning towards government. Do you think government can play this role within the context of beginning to fund and 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 supporting those ventures that are seen to be more at a higher risk? And then I'll, I'll ask this to, to Ruben first and Pumlani, then I'll hand over to my last question.
3: Yeah, true. The government has a space to play. And it can mean that the government invests directly. They can create a guarantee fund, in that uh, they have this fund running with a particular enterprise or maybe the banks, uh, so that when these young guys go there, they're able to access capital because it's covered by the guarantee fund by the government. And also, I would say, experienced entrepreneurs. And uh, unlike me, the next 10 years, I should be setting up a fund. Uh, strictly as an angel investor, uh, focusing on African businesses, and once we start doing this and having this conversation, and also attracting other guys who are, because I say there's abundance of money across the world, so how do we tap into this? And we just need uh, people who are capable, capable, and see through risk, and also the aspect of mentorship. We can create a whole ecosystem where not only are we providing funding, but also we're providing mentorship. You're providing, helping them build around governance, distribution and all that such that when you invest into a company, it becomes successful. Then later on, people realize, yeah, when you invest into, uh, in startups or when you come in as angel investor, these businesses are viable. But still, there's someone who has to still do their hard job. But yes, the government has a place to play in, in terms of also uh, regulations. Uh, for instance, as i mentioned earlier, in our country, you're a startup, you're a young person trying to set up business and you're required to acquire about 16 licenses. How do you go about
2: that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Ruben has touched on this, um, both the regulation and uh, this patient capital um, is important. In Kenya, for example, the scene, in um, the entrepreneurship scene, is largely driven by private sector. Uh, forces. Um, and government has a huge role there to, to provide uh, you know, regulation that incentivizes and, and make sure taxes, for example, in Kenya are ridiculously high for startups. Um, and it's not just in Kenya. We know that, for example, in Ethiopia, as a startup, you need to have offices before you can register. That's the same story as Tanzania. So African uh, government needs to shake themselves up and realize that they need to step in and uh, make sure that the environment is enabling. And of course, Ruben has touched on the the funding, which is very much similar to the Kula Enterprise um, experience that I mentioned.
0: I, I for one, am learning a lot already, and I'm sure the same applies to our listeners. Um, So, Earlier, we spoke to the fact that uh, some of these hubs uh, aren't as evenly spread out even within uh, these countries and are found in potentially more urban contexts and, and often cater to also a type of young an entrepreneur and in a lot of contexts tends to be a male. And I want to get some input from you guys on how we then look to bridge that gap. How do we look to uh, share services or whatever off opportunities of support across a, a system and also across issues around gender lines and and other issues as well?
3: Most of these hubs are mostly in urban areas. And and I think it's just because it's easy to set up in urban areas. But again, that means that in rural areas, you don't have young entrepreneurs who need these services. And I think there has to be a deliberate effort around this. Uh, Just making sure that um, through government agencies, again, I'll go back to government because they help their enablers, create avenues where hubs can be set up in rural areas. And also across gender, especially in our country, I'm seeing a lot of uh uh, uh there's a gender balance in terms of entrepreneurs. You go to most hubs today. I think even uh young men are more disadvantaged as compared to ladies. I see them coming up with brilliant ideas, they're ready to take up the risk. Well, we see, we take longer to ruminate over whether to start or not. So I think uh there's need to set up uh, these hubs in rural areas work in in partnership with the government because at times there's a need to place a setup, infrastructure in terms of, let's say, internet, communication of the availability of these hubs in rural areas. Um, And I think once that is done, then you can be able to tap in and have more entrepreneurs come on board.
2: It's not just about rural versus urban, right? It's also about urban versus urban. Uh, We know that uh, in many of these cities, You've got informal settlements. And what is happening is the placement of these hubs in certain cities, in particular urban areas, is that it privileges an affluent urban entrepreneur as opposed to a township one. Um, And so we need to talk about that if we want to change the, the, the face of that in demographics. We also observe, for example, in the gender issue, Particularly, um, Ruben will know this, in East Africa, it's taboo for a woman to even work without getting married. Or let's say, leave home. You can go study and come back, but you're generally discouraged to um, go stay by yourself outside home until you get married. And I think that also constrains um young women from participating in entrepreneurship. And that's also something we need to confront as much as we need to confront the, the finance issue. So how can we enable our young sisters in Africa to encourage risk? Um, and part of a practical way of encouraging risk is to get somebody out of home, uh, is to change that anthropological, um, disadvantaging history. And Ruben can attest to that. And it's a big issue across um, East Africa, for example.
0: Oh, man, I feel like we could talk about this for for hours and hours. Uh, A massive thank you once again to both of our guests. I think what's been really clear through their answers is that a systems-wide effort is required. And even if you think that you're not an individual who can make a difference, if you're in the government space, if you're in a private space, if you are even just an everyday individual who has an effect on the way, that way young women are seen within particular contexts, your voice has a role to play. Um, So thank you very much for the two of you for joining us. And hopefully we'll get you guys on board soon to continue the conversation.
2: Thank you for having us.
3: Thank you.
1: If there's one thing we know, it's that young entrepreneurs from the global south need access to entrepreneurship and skills development training, technologies, seed-finding support, and spaces like innovation hubs to support them on their entrepreneurial journeys. Local examples of such supportive environments include the Raymond Ackerman Academy's Graduate Entrepreneur Support Service, also known as GES, for RRA graduate entrepreneurs, who on completing the six-month entrepreneurial development course would like to start a business or who require assistance with their existing business. The UCT GSB Solution space is another example of an entrepreneurial support structure. They support entrepreneurs' learning and growth by giving them access to resources, corporate partners, mentors, advisory services, co-working space, and academic and industry experts. They also offer various programs for entrepreneurs, such as the E-Track program, which we'll talk about with our guests in a moment. Today we have with us Zakeni Ngubo from Gelo, an online digital bookstore, and Dha Ndomavu Mengwana from Estraduendi Mobile Foods, a fast foods catering and hiring business that was started in 2016 with just 200 rand. Welcome, Tando and Zakeni.
4: Great. Hey, thank you so much for uh, the invitation.
1: Right. Let's get into it. I'll start off with you, Tando. Can you tell us about your business and what you do and how it came about?
4: Greetings to everyone listening. Um, so my name is Tando, the co-founder of Estratuani Mobile Foods that We started 2016, 200 trends that we borrowed from my sister and my business partner. So... It happened when we resigned from our previous job that we were working for in an organization. So mostly for us to resign because we wanted to start our own organization, but checking out that is hard to get the funds. So we had to start something because both of, um, me and my business partner, we uneducated. We didn't even have our grade 12 and everything. So it was so hard to be employed. So we had to start selling muffins on the street um, in the morning at taxi rent and everything. So... That's how mostly Estratoy Mobile Foods um, started in 2016 with only 200 trends.
1: Thanks, Handel. Uh, and over to you, Zakeni, could you tell us about your business?
4: Uh, we started it in 2021, 20,
5: which is actually a subsidiary of our larger organization, which is Siafunda. And what we've always done essentially is lower the barriers in the education space uh, through technology. Um, Siafunda started in 2014. So it was partly inspired by my own experience in high school, not having a math teacher. And so the idea was to create digital content in local languages and then be able to distribute that for mobile. So making the content and the context relevant to a rural and a township experience. So. We worked with some of the best teachers around KZN, for instance, to develop video tutorials in medicine science. And then we developed what is now called the Siafunda Digital Libraries which essentially are boxes uh, that come with about 5 terabytes worth of storage, preloaded with content, uh, video material, past papers from the Department of Education and other partners, which essentially allows the users on the ground to get the content for free. So that's essentially how we started. And then it's I guess it led to Kelo, uh, the development of Kello, which essentially is Africa's first interactive digital bookstore and e-library, where we partner with publishers to make books accessible at a cheaper rate um, as well as be accessible in a digital environment, essentially helping people transition from using pen and paper but be able to effectively use their books and be able to access them through their digital devices.
1: That's great to hear Zakeni. and what I'm hearing from you is creating access as well as transformation into the digital space and from you, uh, Tando, it's finding that opportunity while selling on the street and, um, and finding that opportunity to be able to venture into the food business. I'm curious to know, Zakeni, you are part of the Solution Space e-Track program. And Tando, you are part of the Solution Space Impact Venture Incubation Program. I'd like to hear about your experience on those programs. And I'll start with you, Tando.
4: Um, I think for me, I would say this was the greatest opportunity ever in a lifetime for for us. Um, our background, as I said, we're not educated. Um, I didn't even finish my grade twelve, and now this is a, pro- a program that is done by UCT. You know, I'm just a boy that was like sitting in the corner in the township, and you, by the way, like UCT itself, it makes you to be scared when you hear enough for a guy that didn't even never went to college. And one thing for me that I've learned and that has helped us to uh, shape our business is that you don't only learn about your the product. I've learned a lot of things that we still use, that we still even implement in our business even now. Some of the things, they even make much sense um, like now. And for us, like... We are the first, um, um, takeaway of the food business that has established a brand that resonates with everyone in the township, that you can even set it up, even if you go to Joburg. Uh, but this is a business that started just by two guys, but with whatever we've learned, um, here in the solution space, man, has, has, has changed our business from your customer segment, from customer personas and, and, and everything. And just, uh, we've learned a lot, man. We've learned, we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot how to set up the business and everything. So, um, For us, this was the biggest, biggest, biggest um, opportunity. And even now we still use that even in in, in our day. I think for us... Um, solution Space has helped us to set up or to build like a brand. So we've set a brand more than just being the guys that 2016 now we're selling like on, on the street. We After coming from the um, the intubation program, we're able to employ about 15 guys. Uh, we've set up a brand even on Facebook. It, uh, it goes to over like 60,000 followers on Instagram, like close to over 5,000 followers, never been boosted organically. But with the systems that we've learned, I'm um, from the incubation program, and it was our first hand experience to learn about such things
1: that sounds amazing and also on that note, the solution space that you were um, part of where this program happened was in Philippi yeah. right in the heart of yeah. Philippi yeah. and you come from that community yeah
4: yeah it was for for us even to go to Philippines, and it was so scared. I remember when we walked in, I was not even sure that I want to come, but because of the environment that the staff how they welcomed um us because UCT can be intimidating anything that has to do with with UCT is very intimidating but with how uh they've made me comfortable on my first day like I'm still and you were still there how you made us like comfortable and even learning cuz our business, we the guys that were just selling like on the takeaway food, but now entering and knowing that there's, um, there's catering as well in our business, we've learned that in the solution space and being given an opportunity, our first catering, we got it like in the solution space. We've catered for one of the biggest uh, universities. We've done business with UCT itself and building that profile, it's easy for us now to get like any other uh, businesses because of what we got from the solution space. So there's a lot of things that I can say that we, we have learned
1: Thank you, Tando. And over to you, Zakane. really curious to hear about your experience on the e program.
5: So I would say for me, this was um, more about coming back to where it all started. I am a, a former UCC student. So in terms of everything that I've learned and everything that I've been able to build, this is essentially where my foundation was. I fell in love with, with UCT. I think I was in grade 9, so and I worked really hard to try and and, and get in when I completed metric with four distinctions I failed math so I was obvious I was obviously rejected. So you know I had at that time many options that you know were not favorable to the life that I wanted you know I was there's a lot of temptation to get a job, to work as a security guard and all of that. But I went into a finishing school in because I'm from Mlas, So I found a finishing school and then I went to upgrade my maths results. And that was actually the first time I had access to a teacher. I could actually be able to buy books because uh, I was working part time. And all with, you know, this one intention of making it to UCT. And so that was I completed Metric in two thousand and three, upgraded in two thousand and four, and two thousand and five I was at UCT in Kobano. And so for me, you know, looking back, you know, that was a long time ago, obviously, um, it was really good to be back home again. So it felt like there was a lot of nostalgia. Obviously, I have very deep ties to the institution itself. So when I found out about the program, um, especially also looking at the work that we do and the work that I've done throughout my career has had a lot to do. With education and students. So for me, I guess, uh, reestablishing those relationships and being part of the UCT now in this type of format, uh, was, was, was something that was really exciting. And, and being part of the program itself, it was amazing in terms of not only getting the information, but being able to build, uh, partnerships, uh, with the likes of MTN, for instance. Um, and obviously, the support that we're able to get and the alumni, which is basically across the continent, uh, we're able to learn from each other. We're able to inspire each other and also just get a bit of exposure in terms of what is out there in Africa. And therefore, if you wanted to expand and work, throughout the content, what does that look like for you? And so the experience for me was actually in in a, in a lot of ways, very advantageous in terms of where I am now in my career and, and the business that we're doing.
1: Great. Thanks, again. And what I'm hearing coming from the both of you is the opportunity to have access to the spaces. Tando, what have been some of the greatest challenges on your entrepreneurial journey?
4: Um, I th- I think for us the greatest one would be COVID. Uh, yeah. So I've uh, never met COVID. Was when, uh, because on 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 COVID it's when we were literally like on on, on, on our scaling level in the, in, in the business. Like we had big contracts that were coming in and we had them running for three months. We have set up um, uh, a restaurant in a shipping container in Philippe the first, you know. So, um, but now COVID came in just after three months having that success and boom, and everything just stops. So I, I would say for us, like um, COVID was the hardest thing. And yeah, and we're still trying to, um, recover like um um from from that. We're still um, planning on new strategies.
1: A challenge that sounds like you were able to pivot and bounce back from. Yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Um, so Kenny, your end? Some challenges that you faced.
5: COVID is also definitely one of them. I think, yeah, pretty much. I think everyone who is doing something, you know, you you were not immune to the impact that COVID had. Uh, and a lot of people you know are still sort of trying to survive and, and are suffering through that, and so it was a really tough period for our country and the world, and obviously especially for entrepreneurs because you 're working in a space with very little safety nets, and so you know a lot of the people in the entrepreneurship space got to really feel the brunt of it and So I would say for me, I think just looking at the the, the wide variety of challenges that i 've had to face, I think by far the most difficult one was the the path that I chose, obviously you know um, when you are you go to high school and you're doing well and then you go to varsity, the expectation for how your life should turn out from family from everyone around you is always very structured and and you considered you know to either be responsible or not responsible based on your decisions, so for me to Decide to venture into entrepreneurship uh, with people around me who were not necessarily you know, well-versed in this space. Um, you know, it was quite difficult to figure out the process of you becoming who you need to be and who you want to be by creating this idea and this solution that only you can see, which to a lot of people doesn't make sense, but at the same time have to maintain and manage the relationships Uh, and the trust from the people around you. So I think for me, it was that trying to create that balance and having to accept that, you know, you lose friends, you lose some family members, you lose the trust, and and, and navigating that space of being completely isolated and being able to figure out exactly who you are and what you are supposed to do and being able to stick to that in an environment where you are completely detaching and detaching from the people that who once, you know, were the center of, of your survival and existence. So, so in navigating that emotionally, psychologically, physically was, was, and financially, you know, uh, was the hardest thing. I think for me, choosing this journey and, and I say it now, and it, it seems like, you know, choosing to be an entrepreneur, every aspect of your life will be stretched to the absolute limits. You will be pushed, you know, emotionally, physically in every aspect of your life. And so, it's um it's 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 very hard to be able to adjust into that environment
1: so Zakeni, moving on from the challenges that you've just highlighted, I'd like for us to unpack a bit more on the value of an innovation hub or a space um of support in the life of an entrepreneur. You've been part of a number of hubs and you've moved across these hubs. Would you share with us? What do you think is missing from the offering or what could be added in your view in these spaces to make it better for entrepreneurs?
5: So I would say for for me, the biggest value that I've found is the community. Um, as I've said, you know, it's a very isolating space that we're in. Um, and a lot of the time you have to reinvent yourself. So to find yourself among other mavericks doing different things allows for you not only to leverage and rely on each other emotionally, spiritually, but also even technically. And I remember the you know the first when when I first started, I didn't have much, uh, I didn't have capital at all, and so how I used to be able to get development for what was Siafonda at the time was to work with other entrepreneurs. You know, I would identify something that an entrepreneur needed, whether it was sales or uh, uh, bookkeeping services, and I would offer myself and my services in return for that kind of development. So I think these kind of hubs create spaces, where you can not only learn how to engage with one another, support with one another and share information but there are also opportunities for collaboration and partnerships um, and also what these these spaces do is a lot of them would give you access to particular platforms or particular partners and so i 've been very intentional about the organizations that and the programs that i join i join is usually has got a very specific intention behind it. So if there's a particular client or a particular partner that I'm interested in based on what we're doing, then essentially what I found is that that is usually the most effective way to be able to get through that door and, and have that partnership. Right? If you wanted to, for instance, partner with FNB, you wouldn't even know, You know, as, a, as an entrepreneur from a car, you wouldn't even know or have the network to be able to get to the right people. But if you decided that, okay, if I want to partner with FNB, what is the quickest way to get through to the right people? Then you find out if FNB has got an enterprise development program or a hub and then join that hub and then through that hub, then you're able to find the right people. And so that's how it, it, the value that it's been able to bring for me, most of the partnerships and the organizations we've been able to find access to and build networks with has been through these kind of programs.
1: I hear you as a What's coming strongly is intention and collaborations great what is one piece of advice that you would give to an entrepreneur in the global south
4: i think i think for um think for me man it's just, just using what you have and just use it and just that's something something is that burning desire that you have in, in your heart just just do it and check out for spaces like solution space you know because this is what has helped us to expand the idea. Because our idea, we thought that we we're going to just sell food in the township, you know. But now, with 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 solution space, we've learned that we can build a brand out of it.
5: Yes, I would say be authentic uh, and be authentically you and be authentically African. I think uh, there's a lot of temptation to want to adopt solutions that other people have created. We live in a continent with a lot of people who have very unique. Uh, life experiences, very unique um, uh, day-to-day resources and access. And you, more than anyone, have an understanding of what that is. And so I think being authentically you and African and incorporating your life experiences into what you're building and your business will allow you to create something that is uniquely African and that can actually add value.
1: Wow. Um... Uh, I'm just reflecting as many young people are looking for work opportunities in this country and also looking at entrepreneurship uh, as part of the solution. It's been such a privilege to hear from both of you in sharing your stories and your journeys uh, around spaces, um, hubs and mentors, as well as opportunities to make use of the tools that you've both learned in the spaces that you've been in and um, programs that you've been part of. So thank you very much, Ingos.
5: Ingos this is, it was a pleasure being on the show. Oh thank you so much.
1: Well Louvoyo, if there's one thing that certainly stood out for me in today's conversations, it's that there's no use in going at it alone. Entrepreneurs need support and the stats show that those who do have support are
0: definitely more likely to make a success of it. 100%. The entrepreneurial journey is often said to be a lonely journey, but it really shouldn't be. If we can reimagine innovation hubs and see to it that it's not only the big cities that benefit, we are likely to see more and more innovations that will blow us away and more and more entrepreneurs from the global south who have a big impact. Thank you for tuning in to Season 2 of the Just for a Change podcast powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. If you're curious about what innovation is happening in Africa and the Global South, and who the movers and shakers behind these initiatives are, then make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss out on any of our upcoming episodes.